I think on the one hand, like, yeah, being autistic in a world that's mostly populated by people who aren't does force you in a lot of ways to learn to translate your experiences and learn to understand that not everyone sees the world the same way as you, which is very helpful life skills. But on the flip side, it can just be hard to have an experience that's quite different from what you're going to see reflected back to you in any source of relationship wisdom and guidance or, you know, any sort of, like, media representations of relationships and that kind of thing. Like, that can just be a real challenge. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to talk about neurodivergence and relationships with special guest Stevie Lang. Stevie is an autistic writer from Australia. He's completing a PhD focusing on care, gender, and the family, with particular reference to mothers in prison. Stevie writes about autism, non-monogamy, kink, the trans experience, and sexuality on his Instagram at underscore Stevie Writes. Stevie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Alrighty, Stevie. Well, we would love to hear a little more about you and your writing on Instagram because your writing is just so beautiful and vulnerable and it's really educational as well. So how did you begin your writing journey and what do you hope to achieve with your writing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's kind of nice to do some reflection on that. I started that Instagram last year, sort of just as the pandemic was kicking off and we were all stuck in our houses. And I noticed that there was a real lack in discussions about things like kink and non-monogamy of perspectives that took into consideration experiences like my own, so being Mm -hmm. autistic. And at the same time, I kind of noticed that non-monogamy and kink communities were completely full of autistic and neurodivergent people. And so it seemed like there was really a need for almost a project of translation some of the amazing ideas that you find in in kink spaces about communication and consent and kind of how to navigate those kinds of complex social relations and a similar thing in non-monogamy spaces where you'll have all of these amazing ideas about you know relationship boundaries and agreements and all of this stuff that can be so helpful for neurodivergent people in navigating any kind of relationship not just mm-hmm. ones that involve non-monogamy that it kind of made me think why isn't someone already talking about <laughs> this and so I started talking about it. (laughs) And yeah, there was definitely an audience for it. And it's been a lot of fun to develop those ideas with other people who have similar experiences. That is interesting that you call it a translation, I guess, experience or approach. That's often how I've thought about what a lot of the non-monogamous community has done in general, which is... you know, translating what is traditional relationship wisdom that feels like it can still apply to us and is still healthy and still works and translating that for non-traditional relationships. And then people like you take that even further to then translate to like my experience and then also translating back to people who are neurodivergent like me in a traditional relationship. And it's almost like the translation goes full circle, like we're (laughs) getting a translation singularity. (laughs) I love Amazing. it. Amazing. <laughs> That's so lovely. We have a lot of patrons, a lot of listeners who are really interested in this, in relationship advice, wisdom that does speak to their own experience all across the spectrum of neurodiversity. So let's start on the 101 level. Can you begin by telling us what neurodivergent means and maybe include some examples as well? Yeah, sure. So neurodiversity, that like that word is distinct from neurodivergent. Neurodiversity mm-hmm. is an approach to neurodevelopmental conditions like autism and a whole range of others. So ADHD, Tourette's, uh, sensory processing disorder, a whole range of conditions along those lines. And it's an application of what's called like the social model of disability to understanding those kinds of conditions. So what that means sort of 
bit <laughs> a bit more clearly is that neurodiversity is basically accepting that there's a whole range of different ways that human brains work and human brains do things like communicate, process information, learn, interact socially with other human brains. Like that there's a whole range of ways that that can happen. And that rather than understanding human processes like learning or communicating or even thinking as something where there's like the ideal way of doing that and then like a series of disordered ways of doing that. It's acknowledging that that picture of diversity actually is a normal part of human experience, that it's mm-hmm. normal for different brains to work in different ways and that that actually like is a source of strength and resilience in, you know, being humans and that that's something that we can kind of understand as part of the picture of how it is to be a normal human. And so neurodivergent and neurotypical, which is like the complement to that term, are ways of within that neurodiversity framework, understanding that some people's brains develop in a way that's typical, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're more normal or better at doing anything, but just that if you go and open the child development textbook, you're going to see like a pattern of development that is described as typical and that's also privileged in lots of different ways. Like Mm. if you develop along that trajectory, then you're probably not going to be disabled in our society. You're probably not going to have a bunch of experiences that undermine your reality or make you really question what's going on with you. You're probably going to have a fairly smooth run of things, at least neurodevelopmentally. And on the flip side, there's people who are neurodivergent, which means that for whatever reason, they have an experience that's not necessarily going to be reflected in that typical pattern of development or typical pattern of communication and thinking and processing. And that as a result, people who have those experiences might find that they need different accommodations to do a lot of the things that we like to do in our lives. So that's probably... I guess the most top level way of explaining it that I can, but I'm happy to take sort of some more detailed questions on that if you want. Yeah, I'm wondering about the journey for you. We've had a lot of guests on this show from all across, you know, the neurodiverse spectrum. Some people who have known, you know, yeah, from the beginning, like, you know, when I was very young, I got maybe a diagnosis or I suspected a diagnosis or my parents talked about the way my brain worked in a particular way. And so I've known that about myself versus people have come to, you know, realizing things about the way their brain works much later in life. You know, like, oh my goodness, I got an autism diagnosis at 30 or an OCD diagnosis much later in life. And I guess I'm wondering for you, since this is something that's both part of who you are and your identity and also part of your work, like what has been your journey towards getting to know the way that your own brain works and coming Mm -hmm. to terms with that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that there's a lot of different reasons why people do have that experience of kind of getting to 30 years old. And I think especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic, a lot of people have been in their houses really coming up against like, wow, I really don't do well with change or you know, (laughs) whatever whatever it is that kind of leads them to think, wow, maybe there is something about my experience that's different from, from how other people are experiencing these same challenges. For me, I was diagnosed when I was 28, so I was late diagnosed, but that wasn't because I was particularly good at, you know, not letting people know that I was autistic until then. As a kid, there were a lot of really obvious signs, but when I reflect back over that with my mom, you know, she'll often say, well, you know, it was the 90s, girls didn't have autism in the 90s. Mm, Um, Interesting. I was brought up as a girl and, you know, it just, Mm. there was no real acknowledgement that autism could look like anything other than being, you know, a small white boy with a lot of traits. And I think a lot of people have had had similar challenges. There was also a real pattern in the 90s and early 2000s of people not wanting to give autism diagnoses to people who were seen as being able to integrate and function in society because, you know, function in scare quotes there, because that was seen as something that would potentially hold people back. Whereas I think now we're getting to a broader acceptance that actually having words for your experience isn't necessarily something that's going to take anything away from your ability to go and do the things that you want to do, but rather is going to give you the tools to do that in a way that's more sustainable. Yeah. I mean, that that thing you just said is is so interesting because I do remember 
I remember at different points, you know, when I was struggling with things like, you know, anxiety or whatever, and wanting to, you know, go to a doctor and maybe try to figure out like what that was. I remember that for my mom, part of her reaction was like, well, like, just be careful because like, once they diagnose you, then like, that's on your record. And maybe that could affect you negatively later in life or something. And I do think that there was more of that concept of that, like, Wow. I don't know. I guess just that that companies are all going to get access to your medical records somehow and then not hire you or or discriminate against you. Well, well but then yeah. the joke is that we're all millennials and all of us have an anxiety disorder. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say if they weren't counting on that right. part. Right. Yeah, if well. you don't have one, you're the odd person out. It sounds like <laughs> maybe in some form that that same kind of thing was going on more broadly. It wasn't just my family, but but kind of in general, there's more fear of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that's been a real obstacle to a lot of people getting the kinds of help and support that they need that almost to acknowledge that a, a, a diagnostic label, you know, for want of a better word, is something that can help you understand your experience, that that's kind of admitting this, you know, complete failure as a person, rather than mm. just like, oh, no, I have like a different aspect to my experience. And these are the words and these are the concepts that actually help me understand that in a way that lets me do the things that I want to do, but in a way that yeah. isn't detrimental or is going to be sustainable. So I went on to our patron group, shout out to our patrons again for helping us with our episodes. Really appreciate that. I But they were super excited about us having you on the show. And I kind of tried to break down their questions into two categories for people who are neurodivergent and then for those who potentially have partners or uh, want to know more about how they can be better allies to people who are neurodivergent. Um, so let's kind of start with the side that for those who are neurodivergent, and I, we got a question that said, do you feel like there are aspects of being neurodivergent that make it easier to be polyamorous? And then on the flip side, are there aspects of being neurodivergent that make it more difficult to be polyamorous? I love that question, but I'm just going to start with a bit of a clarification, which is Please. that neurodivergent is, a, is like a really big uh, term that includes Correct. like a whole range of different experiences. Well, that, I mean, it also includes things like PTSD. Yeah, I exactly. Um, so, and like, you know, something like Tourette's, for example, I can't speak to mm. that from any degree of experience, but I can sort of speak about my experiences as an autistic person. I also have ADHD, got a whole little collection. Um, <laughs> when I went to get my autism diagnosis, I got a social anxiety disorder <laughs> diagnosis as like a little bonus episode or something. <laughs> um, but no, so I can speak to my own experiences. And I think that often what people who are in neurodivergent spaces and communities find is that often some of the tools on that more meta level of like meta communication about how, you know, to share what accommodations you need with someone like that is often useful for people right across a whole range of conditions. So in terms of being autistic and non-monogamous, I think that it definitely is a style of relation, relationing, relating that I find is quite fitting in the sense that it requires a level of communication about the terms of the relationship, which often gets skipped in relationships that don't have that aspect of non-monogamy in them. And because that sort of framing around the relationship itself is happening out in the open, I find that it's both easier to ask for the things that I might specifically need, but also easier just to ask like to understand what terrain I'm on, just to kind of know what the where the boundaries are. Because so often in something, you know, you all talk about in this podcast a lot, so often in monogamous culture, those boundaries or those the the whole framing of the relationship is often like silent and you're expected to infer that from like cues and social intuition. And as an autistic person, like my social intuition is not great. And so just being able to have that communication and that like clarity, I think is really, really helpful for me just like in being even able to relax into a relationship and feel like there's enough space for me to kind of like 
have an experience that isn't constantly like looking around for where the boundaries might be and not knowing where they are. In terms of making it more difficult, I think there's a lot of reasons why being in relationships as a neurodivergent person just can be hard. And I think that it can, there can be a real tendency and I've definitely fallen into this to be like, oh, we're just so amazing at communication because, you know, we like have to constantly be letting people know, you know, like what we need. And I, I think on the one hand, like, yeah, being autistic in a world that's mostly populated by people who aren't does force you in a lot of ways to learn to translate your experiences and learn to understand that not everyone sees the world the same way as you, which is very helpful life skills. But on the flip side, it can just be hard to have an experience that's quite different from what you're going to see reflected back to you in any source of relationship wisdom and guidance or, you know, any sort of like media representations of relationships and that kind of thing. Like that can just be a real challenge. Yeah. I think that's probably, probably the main thing I'd have to say on that. (laughs) I think that's actually a good jumping off point on your Instagram. You relatively recently were also talking about masking and the mental labor cost of masking. And so for the sake of our listeners, can you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. So masking is a strategy that a lot of neurodivergent people use to integrate socially. And it sort of involves a process of doing what you can to diminish the impact that different aspects of neurodivergence is going to have on the way that you're able to engage with other people socially. So to unpack that, a lot of the ways that I mask involve the use of my voice and like things like body language and just, you know, speaking with my hands, that kind of thing. That stuff doesn't actually come naturally to me at all. But if you don't do it and you just speak to people in the kind of one tone voice that might be the easiest way for me to communicate, then there's going to be barriers to social integration that come from that because we do live in a society that isn't particularly accepting of different ways of communicating. So when I'm doing things like modulating my tone of voice or, you know, even making eye contact or trying to convey the appropriate emotional responses to different things, a lot of that comes from actually cognitively thinking about like, oh, okay, hang on, what am I supposed to be doing here? I've gotten pretty well practiced at it in the 30 years that I've been living, but it still is more of a cognitive process than an intuitive process. And Mm -hmm. as a result, that is exhausting. Like I'll probably finish this podcast interview and need to go and like curl up and not interact with anyone for the rest of the day. Like I'm very happy to be here. Don't get me wrong, but that is just <laughs> we so appreciate it when when you know the way that we communicate isn't the intuitive way that that comes naturally to me. And I think that probably more people do that than than they realize. It's something that you know I wasn't like you know 21 and thinking, oh wow, like I'm really cognitively making my way through this you know party at university, but it was something that I came to gradually realize as I sort of unpacked, why do I feel so anxious about these situations? You know, what is going on with me getting all of these physical symptoms after doing this kind of social interaction? You know, what what is it that makes this unsustainable for me? And then learning from other autistic people's experience. Yeah, it's it's all making me think about, too, this, mm. this thing to go back to what you were talking about earlier on, about, you know, maybe not getting diagnosed until later, is this thing of like none of us have any frame of reference but our own and so it is this thing of like is this is this just what everyone feels like and they just deal with it better than me or or am i different or how different am i or you know what other people are are like me and i feel like like all of that that you're talking about i feel like even people like myself, who would probably identify as neurotypical, it's like, yeah, but I can also really relate to certain parts of that. And I think that kind of goes back to this neurodiversity thing you were talking about of just like, even typical isn't actually as typical as we think, I guess. Yeah, totally. No, I I completely agree with that. And I, I'm constantly saying this to people that like autistic people aren't aliens. Like, we are humans and we have a human experience. And I think that perhaps even more like, 
certain aspects of the human experience we're just particularly sensitive to. And so often what people will describe as autistic experience is stuff that everyone can, you know, everyone's had that feeling of like being in the small talk conversation and just like suddenly you're like, you know, 30 feet over your head being like, what do I say? Like everyone's been there. It's just that, you know, that might be something that's more complicated or more common or more debilitating for someone who's autistic. So my, my kid is autistic and you know, I've been through this process recently of sort of seeking accommodation in a school context for his experience. And one of the things that's just really stood out for me in that experience is just that these are the things that all of these kids need, you know, like a smaller Mm. teacher to class size ratio, more individualized attention, more focus on interests rather than kind of like, okay, class, this is what we're doing today, whether you like it or not. And so I think that understanding neurodiversity can be something that's really empowering for everyone just that there isn't a right way of thinking or doing things but we're all different and that's part of what contributes to our strengths so related to that we another one of our questions that we got in the patron group was asking about what kind of access needs do you have in your relationships and how do you discuss those with partners or possible partners so first part i want to i want to just clarify that i'm assuming whatever's personal to you, you don't need to share necessarily on the podcast. And second part of this, I I am really interested in talking about that conversation that you have with possible partners. I know this is something that's come up a lot with clients that I've worked with of, yeah, I have this anxiety disorder and I'm starting to date. Do I put that right out in front? Do I scare everyone off Mm -hmm. as soon as I possibly can? Or do I keep it hidden away for as long as I possibly can until someone likes me? You know, I think that's something that also brings up a lot of a lot of angst for people as well, wondering about those kind of conversations about disclosure and access needs. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I have a real tendency to date other neurodivergent people, but sort of by accident. So (laughs) the partner that I live with, for example, you know, I waited until the third date and then like nervously (laughs) told him and he's like, oh yeah, me too. So yeah, I, I think it is really a question of sort of what your relationship to that experience is. So for me, I'm obviously people are unlikely to meet me without having that context now in part because I talk about it a lot, in part because I'm quite vocal about it on social media, and in part because it's it just is quite central to my experience. I think that's not necessarily the case with everything. For someone who has like a well-managed anxiety condition that they just sort of maybe remember every morning when they take their meds and like that's the main interaction with it, well then, yeah, I don't think that that's going to be something that is, you know needs to be like announced at any point. I think that we really do just need to move away with a lot of these kinds of things from the idea that, you know, there's a normal and there's a different (laughs) and the people Mm -hmm. who are the different ones are the ones who have to like clearly label themselves for the consumption of the normal ones so that they could like opt out and slither away if they needed to. Um, (laughs) I think that most people have, you know, uh, way of thinking, a way of processing information, a particular emotional and internal landscape that they work with, and that that's just part of what you communicate when you're learning about compatibility. And so if using labels like I'm autistic or I have, you know, GAD or or whatever it is that, you know, you want to like put that label on it, then like that that's fine if that helps you. But you could also just just say like, you know, I get anxious sometimes when XYZ. Or, you know, a way that I might describe being autistic, you know, for example, to an employer, I might be like, I really uh, need to know in advance if I'm going to be needed to speak at a meeting. And I don't actually need to provide a whole diagnosis for why that's the case. You know, I can just express what it is that I need. And that diagnostic side of the information doesn't actually need to be part of the conversation. Absolutely. What you said right there is also just like, gosh, how... (laughs) <laughs> just the idea that I could, that I could for myself even just ask for like, hey, I, I need this thing for me to function best. And I think we all do it to some degree, but it sounds like for you, that's been kind of more intentional and more considered. And I kind of like you keep saying, I think these would be really good skills for everybody too. Absolutely. Totally. 
Yeah, I think that there was a real process that I went through when I first figured out that I was autistic and I, I did go through the formal diagnosis process and so got to kind of see this whole psychological report written about me. And I, there was a whole process that I, I went through when I saw that where it was like, oh, I can kind of like exhale, like I can kind of let go of this desire to sort of hold it all together and make it work and not let anyone see that that I might be struggling with something. And that was really transformational. And I think that you don't need to go and like spend thousands of dollars on psych- like psychologist assessments to have that experience. Like you can just accept that like, you know what? Like I actually can't really deal very well with X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to like set some boundaries around that. Or, you know, I'm going to do these other things that make me feel better and make it easier for me to cope with that. Like I used to always think that I was a terrible person because I would like get on a train or a bus and I would instantly just be like extremely cranky at everyone who was like on that bus making any kind of noise <laughs> because I was sensorily overwhelmed, right? Like I was yeah. having like sensory issues and they were like rising to the surface as like this being a real irritable grump. And so I was like, okay, you know what? Like, yeah, I don't have a whole bunch of money. I'm just going to go and buy the best noise canceling headphones that money can buy. And I did it. And I don't get angry on buses or trains anymore because I've accommodated myself and I just accepted, like, this is what I need to go on buses. And if I don't have them, I'm not going to go on any buses. And if I do have them, then I will. And, you know, that it, it's just a really liberating way of thinking about the world. And, and yeah, I, I do think that it's, it's something that's open for everyone. You don't, you don't have to be like a special type of person to, to treat yourself that way and to give yourself that, that level of, of care. That gift. Yeah. That's lovely. That is interesting, though, that you highlight that because I, I do think that for some reason, a lot of us still have, what would I call it, maybe some baggage around kind of this, I guess, sort of this feeling of, I can't really ask for something. I can't really need something that's outside We find the ourselves to be selfish if we do that, I guess. Well, there's that. But also, like, yeah. like, I can't even ask for something unless maybe I'm able to have, like, this airtight diagnosis let's say or unless i've like fully embraced that like okay this is this is way how i am neurodivergent and therefore i have the the weight behind it to be able to ask for the things that i need when again it's just i think like you said it's almost like we can look at it on almost a smaller level of giving yourself those kind of gifts or asking for the things that you need yeah totally and i think that non-monogamy in a way can actually be a tool for starting to do that and I think that a lot of people get into non-monogamy because it does make you think like, oh, okay, like what, you know, what can I break my relationship needs down into? Like what kinds of things do I actually need for validation? What kinds of things do I need for, you know, feeling that sense of having quality time with someone? And I think it's a similar thing with just other areas of your life. It's like, what do I need to feel like I'm not overwhelmed at work? What do I need to feel like I've you know, got this side project in a way that's actually nourishing my life rather than, you know, sucking out of it. And often we can't necessarily do that. Like we don't have unlimited power, especially in the kind of society that's structured the way that it is today. But, you know, we are able to make some small changes or to at least acknowledge where things aren't working for us and we don't have the power to fix it. Because that's also, I think, can be really important. So you're providing this amazing resource for people with your writing and then also even just like within the first 30 minutes of this podcast, I feel like I've learned so much already. I, but as you said before, there's a lot of neurodivergent folks in the ethically non-monogamous community and the polyamorous community. So this is a question from one of our patrons. They asked, there are many of us neurodivergent folks in the ENM community. How much effort to educate non-neurodivergent folks falls on the neurodivergent partner's shoulders versus how much should the non-neurodivergent partner work on educating themselves? We, we are expecting a very precise answer of like no. 60, 40 or maybe 23, <laughs> <Exactly>. 26. <so. laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> It's amazing because I have a real tendency to like ask my partners to like quantify things. So it's like, uh, mm. is this like a 30% chance or is it higher than say 55? <laughs> I think that again, it's sort of about taking it out of this framework of like special different people who need special different things. Everyone needs to communicate. Like I think everyone, especially if you are 
doing something that is potentially going to add a layer of complication to your relational life. So I think about this in terms of kink, I think about this in terms of non-monogamy. You have an obligation on some level to know what's going to work for you and what isn't, and to do your best efforts, your best endeavors (laughs) to communicate that to the people that you're forming relationships with. So if you know, for example, that it's just not going to work for you to like date someone who already has seven partners and is only going to be able to see you like, I don't know, maybe once every other month and you just know that's not going to work for you. It doesn't matter if that's about neurodiversity or if that's just about like what you like from your relationships. Like you probably should at some point check yourself if you're running headlong into a relationship with that person and think like, what's going on here? Is this actually going to work for me? And I think that that's probably the best framework that I can offer for this kind of question about like whose job is it to do which parts of the educating. Like, I think that if you you have specific compatibility needs of any kind, then like it's on you to communicate them. So, you know, I, I go nonverbal sometimes, like it's on me to communicate that to my partners that I'm not giving them the silent treatment because that's a specific compatibility need. But at the same time, if we're in relationships with people, we do kind of also have, in a sense, an obligation to learn about them, you know, and, and maybe it's not best framed as like an obligation. Maybe it's just, you, you talk a lot about the, the Gottman research, but like, that's mm-hmm. what's going to make your relationship work is if you understand your partner and you have like a functioning, you know, they call it a map, like of, of what their world is like. And, you know, part of that is, if someone does have like a specific experience that isn't within kind of the mainstream of representations of what you're going to see in relationship literature or media representations of people's relationships, which, you know, don't really represent anyone's experience, you know, then like, yeah, you probably, you probably are going to have a better relationship if you put some effort into learning about, about what that's like. So yeah, I, I don't really think it's a, it's 60 40 yeah it's, it's yeah, not really 60 40 i'll say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think that the way that you put it though of, of again moving it outside of that framework of here's the normal person and here's the not normal person and like how do we balance those two and instead being more of this there's two people or or more potentially who are in a relationship with each other and kind of both of them need to be putting the effort into both, you know, explaining things about themselves, but also doing the work to understand and learn about the other person and not just kind of take for granted, like, oh, I know how they're going to react to this, or I know how they're going to feel about this, but instead kind of learning that in an ongoing way forever, right? You never get to the end of that, really, of kind of learning how your partner processes things and how they feel about things, because it keeps changing over time, too. Totally. Or even worse, I think that it's easy to get into a pattern of this is how this person should react to this. Sure, yeah. And that their actual reaction, which is like happening again and again and giving you more and more evidence that that is likely how they're going to react, is getting overwritten by, oh, well, they actually should be reacting this way because this is what, you know, and both neurodivergent and neurotypical people can get into that. You know, I have a really hard time understanding sometimes why people have reactions that they have and other people have a hard time understanding the reactions that I have. But I think that if you kind of get into that, well, what is the evidence that I've got before me about how this person is likely to react to the situation? Step back and and don't kind of judge whether or not that should be how they react. I think that that's often like a much better framework for both assessing if this is just an area of incompatibility, which is okay. Like, not mm-hmm. everyone needs to be in a relationship with everyone else. There's my pithy, tweetable tweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's like, like, that's like okay the Stevie Lang up. version of it's okay to break up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, yes. So so one last question on this uh, section here that we got from our patrons. Does neurodivergence impact the way one experiences NRE? And if it does, are there any strategies that help other neurodivergent folk and their partners to navigate this? So again, I'm going to take this one from the autistic perspective. Uh, I think this will probably also be pretty relevant to folks with ADHD. But again, like neurodivergent does cover like a bunch of experiences that I'm not going to be able to speak to. What I will say is there's a couple of different ways that NRE is, in my experience, and that of people I know, impacted by just the different ways that autistic brains might process something new and shiny. So one of those differences is going to be that 
the autistic brain, generally speaking, tends to have like this tremendous capacity for focus. So that can be amazing when I'm doing things like I've got to write, you know, this 8,000 word paper in two days. And like most people would be like, that can't be done. And I'm like, ha yes, it can, which is great. That's a great use of hyper-focus. But then it can also do things like, oh, I have this new partner. And now like maybe a regular person with NRE might just be like, you know, yeah, okay, I'm thinking about them a lot. Whereas my brain's like, oh no, like I mean all the time, literally all the time. And that can be pretty overwhelming. It can, at least for me, now that I know what NRE is, it can definitely lead to like a lot of shame spiraling and like, why am I getting so caught up in this person? And what's wrong with me? And didn't we listen to surviving and thriving in NRE like three (laughs) times already this week? And you know, (laughs) what's, what's my problem? Like, why am I, why am I in this very rational state? And I think that often people who have a similar kind of neurodivergence to me, like that sense of feeling like out of control of the logical part of your brain can be really unsettling because it can make us really question like, am I going to be able to navigate social norms? Am I going to be able to like kind of keep it together in a way that's not going to cause negative outcomes in my life? And so that can just lead to this whole cocktail of anxiety that I find particularly unbearable. I think another really important consideration when it comes to NRE and at least autistic experience is that often the excitement and fun of NRE can push us to like blow past our boundaries in terms of things like social interaction. And that can be a problem both for getting overwhelmed, but it can also be a problem for setting up a pattern of relating with someone that is ultimately going to be either unsustainable or harmful to us leading to this situation where it's like we spent three months literally not thinking about anything other than each other and now one or both of us needs to pull back because it wasn't sustainable and I think that that can really cause some issues for feeling I guess on the one hand, it can lead to the person who is doing that pulling back, feeling like, oh, I'm a terrible partner and maybe I never actually felt anything and blah, 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 and that whole dilemma. But also for the person who's on the receiving end of that treatment, that can be really distressing. And I think that that can be a problem for anyone who's experiencing NRE. But I think for, at least in my experience for autistic folks, that that sort of whiplash effect can be even more pronounced and can lead to sort of even more discomfort. And I think the final thing that I'll say is I do this a support group for like autistic, kinky, queer people. Um, it's been just like such an interesting space to have conversations about things like this. And something that someone brought up in that space was that, and we were sort of all vibing off this idea, is that NRE can almost be a way of stimming. So what stimming is, is basically it's, it's short for like self-stimulatory behaviors. So it's like things like playing with this slime ball that I have here or, you know, using like a fidget spinner or a weighted blanket or, you know, anything along those lines that kind of provides like a sensory input that's comforting or grounding or exciting or adds something to life that helps you deal with the other distressing aspects. And so I think NRE can actually be this really potent cocktail of stimulation and it can kind of help you blow through or overlook different aspects of your relationship life that might be challenging. And on the one hand, that's great. Like NRE is fun. But on the flip side, that can get into a pattern where it's like my relationships get hard after NRE because maybe I don't know the tools that I need to communicate about what I need for my relational accommodations. Or maybe I don't have you know, the skills yet to kind of really judge compatibility early on. And so it's easier to kind of get into this pattern of, of using NRE to push through my social awkwardness and challenges. And then it has all of this fun, stimmy, shininess to it as well. And so now I'm just like getting myself into a pattern where I'm like three months of this, three months of that, three months of the next one, and not necessarily addressing maybe some of the deeper patterns. That is, that is such a thorough and really fascinating, really deep answer. Yeah. And I just like want to say thank you so much for for covering all that ground. Oh, that's so, so fascinating. We're going to take a really, really quick ad break. We're going to be hopping back in with some more questions for Stevie. But in the meantime, during our break, you're going to find out different ways that you can help support the show and help keep information like this coming to people for free. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. All right, and we're back. So we're going to move on to the questions that are kind of categorized for those who are neurotypical. And people asked how they can be better allies in the polyamorous community. Because as we've talked about multiple times, there are a lot of neurodivergent people in the ethically non-monogamous community. So what are some tips and tricks? What are some things that we can do besides listening to this amazing episode? I think that it's honestly doing the work and the stuff that we talked about right at the start about acknowledging that things like stimming, having needs in terms of communication, having uh, specific compatibility needs about what is going to leave you feeling like you can basically function happily along in a relationship. It's not something that's just for special kinds of people. And I think that that's the hardest thing to do, but it's also the thing that's going to shape all of the other stuff you do in kind of the right ways. Because I think often, especially with words like allyship, we can kind of end up in this idea that we're kind of looking at some people who are very categorically different from us that, you know, they're very hard to relate to and that we kind of have to use these special tools to, you know, engage with. And I think that that's that's not really where the neurodiversity model is going. It's it's Mm. more about the idea of diversity being something that includes everyone. And so I think getting your head around that, doing some reading about the social model of disability, I think can be like really empowering both for people who might feel that they're disabled or people who feel that that's not relevant to them. It's still, I think, a really helpful way of looking at the world. And yeah, I think that that's probably like the, the most most important part of it. And then from there, I think that gives you a different way of looking at things like communication. Because then, you know, you'll, you'll look at, something like the Gottman's research, which is like really amazing research about, you know, what makes relationships work. But instead of seeing it as like, oh, well, this is how you have to communicate, which is often, I think, what a lot of people can take away from relationship research. It's like, okay, well, like, this is how I communicate. And this is how you communicate. How can we apply this tool in this context? Yeah, like customizing it for you. I love that. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Hell yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like we like we sometimes like to say, customize and don't weaponize. 
there you That's go. A good one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Dedeker, you're just like when I go on full my of one liners <laughs> today. It's beautiful. When I go on my tour, my '90s style tour of schools around the country. <laughs> That's oh my god! That would be amazing. Wow, <laughs> we're gonna—I don't know. Like, we'll, no, Milky Way will things create, are gonna like, have to change a lot to, for that to happen. No, we'll be I one of those it. troops that goes to schools and does little skits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About oh good my relationships gosh. and good relationship communication, and then at That's the beautiful. end, we'll break out into like a really bad, like '90s style white person rap about. Oh, customize, don't weaponize. Yeah, and it'll be I great. like it. That's good. You could put it on like VHS, like you know, like the, <laughs> oh, yes. the obligatory, like. And then know, nobody will be able to ever watch it no. again. <laughs> totally. Maybe we could have puppets involved. Those were hot. Amazing. In the 90s. Yeah, uh-huh. puppets yeah. and yo yos, just all of the '90s tropes right. of school Pogs, tours, jump ropes, all in one yeah. tour. I love it. Beautiful. <laughs> It'd be hot. It'll be hot with all the millennial parents. True. Oh, for sure. Yes, exactly. That's yes. how we'll do it. Yeah. Quite. So we got this this other interesting question about boundaries. Everyone's favorite Our topic. Our favorite. Yeah. So uh, this person says, I would love some input on establishing and maintaining boundaries with neurodivergent folks, knowing that sometimes a quote-unquote reasonable boundary may cause an upset. And what I will add to this is, again, extending this to this just being applicable to everybody, regardless of how your brain works, you know, how do you handle that situation where your boundary is my trigger because it seems like that happens all the time in relationship. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard, right? I think there was a certain point in my like multi-amory listening career where I was like, you know, just coming into polyamory and it seemed like this whole new way of doing things and like all these smart people had like the answers for everything, right? (laughs) And like it for a while, it was kind of working that way. I was like, oh my God, my relationships are so much better than they used to be because I'm communicating and setting boundaries and all and it it honestly feels amazing if you've come from a really messy dicey relationship history like i have to suddenly be like just having an open communication with someone about a relationship issue but i think that also then comes a point in one's multi-amory listening career or polyamory (laughs) explorations or just you know general relationship evolution where you're like oh uh some things are just hard and Mm. Sometimes there is no answer, and sometimes it's just a case of either this was an incompatible relationship, and it always was, and now I'm going to have to accept that and deal with it, and that's going to really, really suck, or it's not an incompatible relationship overall, but this is an area of incompatibility that's just going to be there, and there's not going to be like a clear and comfortable answer to that. And there's, I don't think, at least for me, that there's really been much that can take away the discomfort of that. Like either of those situations is going to be really yucky. And I think that it it just comes down to that approach of, you know, not judging what other people's reactions necessarily are or judging what other people's boundaries are, but just looking at your own self and saying, is this compatible? Is this something I can do without getting into self-betrayal territory? Or is this something that I actually just can't? And I'm, I'm going to need to come up with either a different set of boundaries that are going to take me away from this painful situation, or I'm going to need to accept that there wasn't actually the compatibility that we needed there to start with. And I think that's the work that, that, that everyone has to do. You know, both people who are neurotypical or people who are neurodivergent, like that's just a, a challenging, yucky situation. Yeah, yeah. That that point shows up in the multi-amory creating career as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a milestone. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to move on to this next question here, and I think that in light of a lot of what we've talked about, we can modify it even a little bit too. So the question was: uh, It's that for neurodivergent people, face to face communication is often difficult. How does one best navigate consent and the four Fs, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn uh, with neurodivergent partners. And I could maybe even say we could modify this to just say, rather than being about neurodivergent or not, but to just say, if you have a partner who has a hard time with face-to-face conversation, uh, what are some techniques for navigating these sorts of things? Yeah, so I think that the first thing is taking away the judgment around communication styles that aren't face-to-face speaking with your mouth, because for some people, that is actually not the most authentic way of communicating. For me, 
doing the mouth talking in the face-to-face context is like the least authentic. That's the one where I'm most likely to say things I don't mean, have emotional reactions that don't make sense to me, just like generally be confused and overstimulated by my environment and end up like making a complete either fool of myself or like accidentally like horribly upsetting someone by saying something that's completely tactless and tasteless, but I don't realize it. So like, I think that just removing the judgment from that space is like a really big step that like not everyone finds face to face, like, you know, oh, you've got to do it in person or or whatever it is. Like not everyone is going to find that that is like the most authentic, helpful, or even like useful form of communication. So once you've done that, then I think it's about working out what does work best for what kinds of conversations and what kinds of communications. So consent was like one of the things that was that was brought up there. For some people, that that might be a requirement that if I'm going to do X, Y, and Z with you, I need to like have a, a conversation with you where I feel assured that you're consenting to this, and that's like a very reasonable boundary to have. Like you're you're allowed to have that boundary you can also find that that boundary might be inaccessible for certain people, right? Like that, that might not be something that everyone's going to be able to do for you. And so if that is something you want and it's not right there at the level of a deal breaker, then maybe it's okay. Like how about we hop on, you know, a texting platform and we like go back and forth in some detail textually about what's going to happen and what we want the scene to look like, what we want this experience to look like. And then, you know, like, like speak it out in that format. And maybe that will meet that person's needs for feeling like, like what's happening is being consented to. I think that asynchronous communication, which is basically texting and then waiting for a response as opposed to like what we're doing now, like where, you know, I'm talking, you're responding, et cetera. It can be a really challenging thing for people who have anxiety for whatever reason, because you know, that might be rejection-sensitive dysphoria, which is this experience a lot of folks with ADHD have. That's like this particular sensitivity to perceived rejection. So for someone who's having that experience, even waiting a couple of minutes between texts could like elevate the level of anxiety to something that's just like not going to be sustainable. And so I'm bringing this in in the context of like fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Like that waiting might trigger someone's fawn response so that whatever the response they get back, they're just like wanting to reestablish that connection at all costs rather than communicating what's actually on their mind. Or it might just lead to like complete shutdown. Like I can't text, I can't do this. And I think all of that is like super valid. Like everyone gets to work out how they want to communicate, but it's also the fact that not everyone is going to be compatible in how they do things. And I think having these conversations sort of early on in a relationship is a really helpful thing. And again, this could look like, hey, I'm autistic and blah, 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 blah. Or it could look like, I really can't have a serious conversation over tax. Like if if you want to sort of bring up an issue in our relationship, like I would really love it if you could just call me or if we could hop on Discord and chat back and forth, but like both be focused on on the, you know, the task rather than kind of leaving gaps between messages. So yeah, I, I think I think that's the best I can do with that one. But <laughs> feel free to ask any follow-ups if there are any. No, that's great. Yeah. I it, somebody also asked, I'm dating someone who says their ADHD contributes to their struggles with time management and communication. And they're trying to figure out a way to navigate to be supportive, but also feel like there needs to be accountability for that. So yeah, it just I guess it questions regarding things like uh, time management and communication, you've talked about a lot, but I guess yeah, that specific time management one if you could address that. Yeah, I mean, the word that stood out to me in that was accountability. And I think that sometimes when we're talking about neurodiversity and relationships, it can slide easily into the sort of like anything goes terrain, where it's like you can do whatever you want because all of our brains are different and, you know, like you you get to just be your amazing unfiltered self at all possible times and moments. And like... I don't want to give the impression that that's kind of like what I'm saying. I think that, yeah, everyone's brain is different and attempts to try and get someone to communicate, process, 
do things differently than the way that comes naturally to them are going to have consequences in the sense that it's either going to be really challenging for that person, they're only going to be able to maintain it some of the time, which, you know, you're going to need to come to terms with the fact that that's not going to be something that comes naturally to them, no matter how much you want it to. And similarly, it's going to have costs and consequences for the person who is trying to change their communication style, because now they're in a situation where they're basically masking, and Mm. that is going to lead to, you know, exhaustion, discomfort, whatever, that's going to be displaced elsewhere in their life. Now, for me personally, I have relationships with people that do not feel comfortable all of the time because I'm a human. And sometimes I do have to mask in relationship contexts and that's fine. But that also means that I need to set aside time and space in that relationship where I can recover from that masking. So for example, doing a radar, like that is going to be, like if I'm going to sit down and have a whole radar with someone, that probably means that I'm not going to then have the energy to communicate with them for the next two days. So, you know, what, like what's going to work? And in some contexts, I've found that actually like doing that really focused, intense processing and then having time away from each other is like what's necessary and going to work. But then in other cases, like maybe it's not worth the two days away from each other to do all of that processing in one go. But if you're finding yourself in a situation, if you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, where you're consistently misunderstanding someone, where you're consistently hurting someone, and where the way that you do things is consistently leading to distress for another person. I think that that's time to really start thinking about your compatibility with that person because there are a lot of different types of people out there in the world. There are some people, for example, who also struggle with time management for this particular question and where this wouldn't necessarily be felt as like a big source of disrespect. Whereas for other people, like, and you talk about this all the time in the podcast, yeah. showing up late is like extremely disrespectful and hurtful and, and, you know, whatever other like, you know, challenges and deep like layers of like feelings of abandonment and all of that kind of thing are going to come up around that. And so if you're consistently finding yourself in that situation, it's, it's really on both people to like assess the compatibility of that situation. And it's not the case that you can just kind of like go, oh, well, I'm neurodivergent. And so, you know, you have to put up with this because that's not, that's not the case. Like it's always about compatibility and it's always about finding what's going to be sustainable and, and doable for both people. And like you said, not everybody has to be in a relationship with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And as we say, it's okay to break up. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and and that's going to be hard, right? Like, that's going to suck sometimes. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stevie, this has been such a rich episode. We Mm. so want to thank you for answering so many people's questions and really sharing your wisdom. So first question, as we're coming to a close here, are there any good groups or good resources that you could suggest for polyamorous, neurodivergent folks and their partners? Oh, I'm going to be a real nerd and say the multi-amory patient oh, group on Facebook. <laughs> um, no, but it really is. Uh, <laughs> gross. Teacher's pet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also, yeah, if if y'all out there want to contribute to episodes like so many of our patrons did, then yeah, come to the patron group because it's, also it's a lot for of- many things. There's also a lot of neurodivergent people on there who give mm-hmm. amazing advice, which I think is like yeah, has been really valuable for me. In terms of other spaces, I'm not not a lot are coming to mind. I think that there's not a lot of specific neurodivergence and non-monogamy talk, but in non-monogamy spaces, you will often find a lot of neurodivergent people. So just finding the good ones of those can be a, a really helpful tool. And then what about resources, uh, like for learning about the what, what was it? The social model of disability or the community model of disability? What was the term? Social model of disability. Okay, yeah. So that's something you could just Google. Okay. Um, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the scholar who came up with it off the top of my head, but I can I can email that to you and you can add it to the show notes. I think for just general autistic kind of getting your head into this way of thinking about things from a neurodiversity perspective, there's a great website that's put together by a lot of people who are autistic that's called Neuroclastic. And it just has like a whole bunch of different articles on there about all kinds of different aspects of autistic experience that for people who are specifically looking for that, then, you know, that I 
found is like a really good place to point people to because it is just so full of different things and different different ways of experiencing autism. Well, and then let's also talk about you. Where can our listeners find more of you, more of your work? Is there any projects or anything on the horizon for you that you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, so you can find me at Instagram. So it's at underscore Stevie Writes. I also have a Patreon. I'm currently putting together a workshop on transmasculinity and sex and dating. So that that should be interesting. Nice. Um, and but mostly I do my day job. So unfortunately, I don't get to spend as much time talking about these things as I would like to. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for all of this, Stevie. This was incredible. So we're going to continue our conversation with Stevie in our bonus episode for patrons. And that is going to talk about neurodivergence and the intersection with kink. So I'm really interested to learn more about that. And then our Instagram question for this week is, how do you relay your communication needs to your partners? Really interested to hear what all y'all out there have to say about that. And then in addition, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvinetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenewark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.